You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Karen Feinerman, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. I've only wanted to be one thing in my life, a doctor. So I watch closely the behavior of my doctor father modeled for me. I listen intently to doctors and medical thought leaders throughout my education and training. I could relate to them. You know what I didn't pay much attention to growing up? My mother and stepfather, who were business people. My ears didn't perk up when the latest financial show popped up on CNBC, and I didn't rush to the front door to collect the Wall Street Journal. Fast forward years later, when I was attempting to start multiple small businesses, I was lost. I'd always known how to maneuver my medical career, but often couldn't relate to the business people or jargon surrounding these entrepreneurial ventures. Relatability. How much of a barrier is it to success? My guest today, Karen Feinerman, developed an interest in Wall Street at the age of 15 and eventually became a hedge fund manager and financial television personality. In her new podcast, How She Does It, she interviews founders, CEOs, and deans. But in her show, it's about a woman's place in the world. It's about economics with a small e. It's about mentorship and learning the lessons they aren't going to teach you in business school. Nothing is off limits when talking about success, including failure. In other words, it's about making business, our economy, and Wall Street relatable to women and men, regardless of their background. Karen Feinerman co-founded New York-based hedge fund Metropolitan Capital Advisors in 1992 and serves as the CEO. She has been a panelist on CNBC's Fast Money from its debut year in 2007 until the present. Ms. Feinerman is the host of the How She Does It podcast from Her Money Media. She's a strong advocate for women's sports and owns a stake in the WNBA. She's the author of New York Times bestselling book, Feinerman's Rules, Secrets I'd Only Tell My Daughters About Business and Life. Karen Feinerman, welcome to Earn and Invest. I've heard you say that at the age of 15, you were destined to go to Wall Street. Why? First, thank you, Jordan, for having me. I'm very happy to be here. So was I destined? Yes, I was. And the reason was I really wanted to make money because I wanted to have independence and power. And I saw that my mother was in a very traditional marriage and didn't have any money or power of her own. And that really seemed like a huge disadvantage in a relationship, in life, in in everything. And it's not that my father withheld it sort of 
in a punishing way at all, just that they both kind of agreed. He made the money, he had the power. So I definitely didn't want that. But the thing that really sparked my interest was I was reading about takeover deals, trading on takeover deals. And at the time, there was this guy, Ivan Boeski, was how I thought you pronounced his name, because <laughs> I had never heard that. anyone. I never heard anyone pronounce his name. Nobody knew him. And I thought, wow, that's what I wanted to do, not realizing he was an insider trader. But I did think what well, this seems like an interesting career. I told my parents, look, I'm only applying to the Wharton School for college, which is the undergraduate business program at the University of Pennsylvania. And I said, if I don't get in, I'm not going to college, which is obviously a very dumb plan. But thankfully, they took me and I was laser focused, which is a real luxury. It's 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 easier when you know exactly what you want to do. It's hard when you don't. You talk about those traditional roles with your mother and father that they modeled for you when it came to money. But you also say that your mom, you would consider a tiger mom, even before that term was part of the culture. How did her attitude about success affect you and kind of your childhood? I mean, it, it was never quite good enough, whether that was grades. Sometimes you got all A's and you couldn't do better. That was good enough. But I was a pretty competitive tennis player. and. That also, I wasn't quite good enough. And so it, it sounds very harsh in hindsight, but I think it made me really try hard to succeed. And that ended up being a good thing. Talk about sports, because you I mentioned in your intro that you invest in the WNBA. And obviously, you're talking about high school and being involved with sports there. Did sports connect to some of your drive to be successful in business? And do you see them as similar pursuits? I see them as definitely overlapping pursuits in that you've got to practice. You've got to work really hard. But also, I think that there's something great about being part of a team, which is a really nice thing. And I actually, I'm a big fan of structure, which sounds maybe not so great, but I really think structure in many ways is liberating also. You know where you need to be, you know what you need to be doing, and you it's sort of like a muscle that you work, you know. And so I like the structure of being on a team. I love the camaraderie. I love the working out. I did not like losing. I really didn't like losing. And that was that sort of motivates one as well. Let's talk about your career trajectory a little bit. So you went to Wharton, you come out of undergraduate, and not that many years later, 1992, you partnered with Jeffrey Schwartz to launch a hedge fund. Mm -hmm. That seems quick to me. How did you get involved with a hedge fund so early in your career? Yeah. So my first job was working for Jeffrey when he was running a risk arbitrage fund, which is basically was running a hedge fund for the Bellsberg family and some outside investors. Now, the Bellsberg family were sort of corporate raiders of the 80s. And then on the side, they had this hedge fund that invested in takeover deals that were unrelated to their deals. And so Jeffrey started that venture for them. And I came to work with him when I got out of school. And then in the early 90s, the Bellsberg empire kind of imploded, which was a very difficult thing for them, a very interesting lesson to learn. 
So they closed down the hedge fund and I went to Donaldson, Lufkin, Jenrette, and I worked on their risk arbitrage business. And that was 1990 to 1992. And it was interesting. You could have been the best risk arbitrageur in the world. You were not going to make money. And that was an important lesson to me. You know, some of it is, are you in the right place at the right time? And Jeffrey, to his great credit, said, we got to start a hedge fund. This is just, this is ridiculous what's available out there. The market was terrible. The economy wasn't great. There was the savings and loan bust. And that creates all kinds of opportunities for investors. And so we started in 1992. There weren't very many hedge funds. And we really didn't know exactly what we were doing, but we knew how we knew that there were places where we thought we could really find great risk rewards to invest in. And were you right? How were those first few years? Outstanding. I mean, I really, I always say you could have been the dumbest investor in the world <laughs> at that period and you were going to make money. You couldn't not. It was outstanding. But the real, the real crux of it is just getting yourself in the right place at the right time. Speaking of the right place at the right time, in 2007, you started as a panelist on CNBC's Fast Money. I believe that was the beginning of the show. Talk about how that opportunity influenced you and specifically what role did you play as a panelist? Well, so it was the, the actually getting on the show is a completely unforeseen, unsought out. I just there was an article women on Wall Street and I was one of them. And the producers at CNBC who created Mad Money with Jim Cramer created Fast Money as sort of a sister show. And they they started the format. They were looking. They had five guys, five, literally five big guys on the show. And then I think they realized, wow, maybe we need a little something else somewhere. (laughs) And so they asked me, would I try out for this show? And I always tell my, you know, I wrestled with it because I thought, wow, I don't know, this might be kind of a dumb show. And I'm a hedge fund manager. What will that do to my reputation? And then I realized I'm a hedge fund manager. What kind of (laughs) reputation do I really have? So why not? And so, I mean, that's been 16 years and I've learned a lot. It's been tremendously fun. I love Melissa Lee, our host. I love the guys. And it's almost all guys. There's a few women that we have sort of rotating in, but it's almost all guys. And we just have a great time and I've learned a lot. And the other thing that's sort of funny is when you're on TV, people will call you back (laughs) for no other reason than that, which is dumb, I realize. But it's, it's interesting. So management teams that I wouldn't be able to get to before, I can now call them and they'll call me back. And I, that's helpful. One of the opportunities that has come up of late is your new podcast, How She Does It, which is part of the Her Money Network. The copy regarding the show describes it as not your typical interview for not your typical woman and goes on to say it's a show about power. Talk to me about the typical power dynamic in the business world today and why that's important to the show. So the show is primarily for women, but not entirely. And so each of the guests are women and they have each had a circuitous path and power was always something they were seeking or something they 
were managing or something they wrestled with having, whether or not it's in their career or in their marriage or the idea of, well, I make more money than my husband or how does that dynamic affect us? And, and then sometimes it's about how do you use what power you might have? I have found that sometimes being a woman is an advantage. And I always give the example, I love to look at companies that are industrial companies. So something like United Rentals, which sounds super boring, even the name United Rentals, super boring. But if you go to an industrial conference as an analyst, there's going to be nine men for every one woman. And that's an advantage to the woman. And so it's about sort of finding your power, whether it's finding your voice, or finding your ability to negotiate or finding your ability to create your own job when other opportunities don't seem available. Whenever I hear the term power dynamic, I think of powerlessness. And so you've now been in the financial world really since the late 1980s, early 1990s, and you've seen all the changes that have happened over the last 30 years. Do you Mm -hmm. think the power dynamic is better for women today than it was before? Has it changed? It's better, but I wouldn't say it's great. I feel like it has so much further to go. I feel like we're behind other industries, actually. But I do think it is a very good career path for women. And I think some of that is sometimes self-selection. That part is changing. I do see For example, I know at Wharton, over half of the class for the graduate school is women. And so the opportunities are there and and companies want to hire women. They want to, they're trying, you know, whether or not it's earnest or not, they feel like we have got to be more diverse. And so opportunities are there. But it's still, it's very hard, very hard to get to the very top. And I look at, you know, corporate America. We've gone, we've gotten now to 53 women out of the Fortune 500 companies. 53 CEOs are women out of the 500. That's an improvement. But clearly, clearly, we have a very, very long way to go. I want to get back to this idea from the introduction of relatability. And I I face this a lot with me and my platform and my podcast. I talk a lot about personal finance and financial independence. And on some level, people look at me and say, well, you know, you're a doctor. Of course, it's easy for you to work on your income. Or of course, it's easy to use your medical skills to side hustle and those kind of things. So let's talk about your role as a podcast host. I've seen you described as one of the few women to conquer the cutthroat male-dominated world of hedge funds. And a Guardian article I saw from 2007 went as far as to say that you hold all the trump cards in the hand of life. This is describing you and how you've done in business, et cetera. First and foremost, do you kind of agree with those characterizations? And the reason why I ask and what I'm trying to get to is, and I'll be very open that, you know, I feel like the people who are going to listen to your podcast are not going to be coming at it from the success standpoint that you have, just like the people listening to my podcast about personal finance aren't necessarily coming at it from a place of high income. So do you think those things fit you? And and we'll talk about relatability in a minute. Do they fit? Would I say I've conquered? No way would I use that word. No way. I would you choose I've been involved with. Conquered is a very different thing. And I don't think that applies. 
I also realized when that article came out with some made up numbers that, wow, the British press can really write whatever they want. (laughs) And it doesn't need to have any basis in reality. So, you know, I realize it's a little unusual to have a, a woman starting a hedge fund in early 1990s, but Concord, no. Um, so I often think of, am I relatable? Um, you know, I feel that I really try hard to walk in other people's shoes in every area of my life. I try hard that to do that. And sometimes I can, and sometimes I can't. But I think that I can teach things to anyone who's just starting. And I sort of feel like, um, well, this is, I always come with this analogy, see what you think. Do you need to have an oncologist who has or had cancer to trust them? They can't know your experience exactly if they haven't, but they can be very familiar with it and have a lot of knowledge about it. It's interesting, right? Because the guests, some of your first few guests who are going to be on are founders and CEOs and deans of business schools, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But an express purpose of the show is to show mentorship and help people learn the lessons that they're not going to really teach you in business school. Mm-hmm. And so I guess part of the question is, how far does the education piece get you versus how much of it is, for instance, listening to experts? How much of these things are women going to go and learn in classes versus learn from peers, mentors, or working themselves? I think you you just got to try to find it any which way you can. And sometimes it's going to be very serendipitous and sometimes it's going to be you know, teaching yourself some skill that you don't have or or a class. If you have some focus, even though you might not have a lot of background and don't be afraid to ask questions, some of it is just there's there's sort of some luck and then there's some skill and then there's some serendipitous element to it. But some of it is just keep trying, keep trying. I mean, every woman I know who's been quite successful, every single one, has had disastrous failure. Which is interesting, right? Because a lot of the people you're interviewing are some of the most successful people out there. And Mm -hmm. yet failure may be the most common thread, right? Yes. All of the things that bring people success, it sounds like failure is the thing that may tie people together. It does. It does. And there's a lot to like about failure, as ridiculous as that sounds. One, it does help make people more relatable. Wow, even that woman could fail. Or even that woman could fail twice. You know, and so I fail. So she did too. Others do too. And you learn so much from failing. You don't learn as much from succeeding. You may not exactly know why you succeeded. So I come back to when we started our hedge fund. Were we the smartest? No. But we were at the right place at the right time. And that is, you can't always control that. That's a little bit of luck. And sometimes you need some luck and sometimes you need some perseverance. But all of them, all of the ones I'm thinking of have failed. 
And it's notable, right? Because if we look at the social media culture that we now live in and TikTok and Instagram, there's really a lot of talk of success and much less talk about failure. Uh-huh. I, that's too bad because failure is so important. It's humanizing. It's relatable. It also can make you view someone a little bit differently. Like, oh, what could I have in common with that person? Well, having failed, that's something big in common. There's so much, so much to learn from it. We are talking to Karen Feinerman, who co-founded New York-based hedge fund Metropolitan Capital Advisors in 1992. And we are talking about her new podcast, How She Does It. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is Earn and Invest. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R. USA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, service key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. LinkedIn Sales Navigator is a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash earn. That is linkedin.com slash E-A-R-N for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash earn and get started. We are talking to Karen Feinerman. She co-founded New York-based hedge fund Metropolitan Capital Advisors in 1992 and serves as CEO. She's been a panelist on CNBC's Fast Money from its debut year in 2007, and she is the host of the newly produced How She Does It podcast. Karen, you wrote a book, I think, in the early 2000s called Feinerman's Rules, Secrets I'd Only Tell My Daughters About Business and Life. Tell us some of those secrets. What are the things that you think specifically are important for daughters? And maybe even have they changed since you wrote the book? Well, it's interesting. I should just tell you, I have two sets of twins. Each set is a boy and a girl. And as much as we think we have this scientific experiment at home about we're going to raise them exactly the same and offer them the same, you know, 
clubs, activities, whatever, they are very different. One of the sort of the overarching secret is that women sometimes get in their own way in a way that I don't think men do. And that's really important. You know, women in their sort of, in their search for perfection, waste a lot of time, waste a lot of energy. So that's that's one of the main things. So I give this example of search for the 51% solution. And what that means is, you know, when you have a very difficult decision to make, and let's say it's, do I stay home? Do I quit working and stay home with the kids or do I not? That's a very difficult decision. And I think you have to approach it and think about what will make me happy 51% of the time or more. And then you have to recognize that whichever of the two that you choose, expect to regret that decision at some point. It's never going to be that, oh, wow, this was absolutely, I don't have one minute of, you know, one minute of second thought or regret or anything. That's unlikely. But just remember, you're trying to get to 51% or better and know that that's the best you can hope for sometimes. So don't let the, you know, the ambivalence trick you into thinking you made the wrong decision. I always struggle with this idea, and especially when we're talking about things like power dynamics, how much is improving things based on changing ourselves versus changing the system, right? So we were talking about some of your rules, some of the things you're trying to teach your daughters, but how much do we also teach, for instance, that maybe the system is broken and that it's not that you need to change how you do things, but that we have to look for a legislative change? I mean, I'm thinking about things like the gender pay gap, or I'm thinking about things like the glass ceiling or not having, for instance, a woman president yet. How much do we tell people to change themselves versus say, well, kind of the system is at fault and let's work on the system? I guess it's sort of a, we've been working on the system for a really long time. And I think that it's moving slowly, slowly, but not enough. And so in the interim, You've got to work on your your own approach to the system. That's going to have much more one-to-one effect than the system at large. So I wouldn't say d- don't do either if you if you can help with the system at large, but absolutely make it happen for yourself. If you can, try to make it happen for yourself. And all of the women I know have made, have found a way. They found a way. One of them literally, her, her sort of tagline is just find a way. Hmm. Do you think for women today looks like the success that men have been chasing forever? Or is this a very different model of what success looks like? Uh, that is a great, great question. I think it is a different model. I think there is more balance as a as a goal than there was. I think also for women, it's hard to, it's harder to have balance. You know, I think that we, it's, it's a biological basis of behavior, I believe, for a woman to feel more, I mean, I'll give you an example, you know, a baby cries at night, the man might say, oh, you know, I wish, I wish I could comfort them. And the woman lactates. I mean, that's a very different response to the same stimuli. So in many ways. So 
I think that for women, success means something different than it does for men. I think it's more about power for men, more about money. And one of the, I interviewed a pair of women who talked about women want the power to, the power to do something. Men want the power over. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, it's an interesting distinction. It's subtle, but it's, 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 and when you hear it, you're like, oh, okay, I get that. It means different things. Yeah. What about money? I mean, what about the meaning of money? Do you think it's different for women? Is it different for you personally? It has changed for me personally over time. You know, earlier on, I, my very first bonus, I think it was $6,000, and I spent 1500 of it on a, one of those five CD holder, you know, <laughs> CD players where the plate comes out, you can put in five discs. Mm-hmm. I never got more joy out of anything that I bought myself ever than that. And so I liked making money. But once I was able to be financially independent, I was really interested more in growing my money than spending it. And maybe that's an age thing. Maybe you mature a little bit. But I was really focused on how do I have enough money later? How do you define enough? I always wonder that when people uh, talk about things like growing their money, like how do you know when you know it's enough you when, finished? Yeah. It's when it's well past what enough is. <laughs> I don't know. That's not a very mathematical definition. So you can do that a couple of ways. You know, you can you can make a lot of money, you can invest your money, you can change what's important to you, right? And how you spend your money. But for the for the overwhelming vast majority of people, it isn't enough. Not because the, the, it's just because literally it isn't enough. So, I mean, it's a it's a luxury of a problem to have. One of the things you mentioned is is when you accumulate more, you can start invest in things you yes. care about. Let's talk about the WNBA. Why did you get involved with them, and why was it important to you? So, I, I think women's sports are so important for women. I think, you know, we talked about the team and the structure, the discipline, all of those things help one be successful, I think, in any field, in any endeavor. And so I'm a big supporter of women's sports, and I've been interested in women's basketball. This league has been around for a long time and has not really been able to get traction until very, very, very recently. And I mean, it kills me that you know, a man on an NBA team will make multiples, multiples of the entire payroll of a woman's team, not just one player, the entire payroll. And so it's a chicken and egg problem for the women to get any traction. And it's a really, they they are masters at what they do. But for the women to get any traction, they need eyeballs on the sport. Then they can get a media deal. Then they have more money. Then they can, you know, elevate the game or the the staff or the accommodations. You know, it wasn't so the women's WNBA only just now did they put in a part of the contract that for the playoffs, women will fly chartered flights. Other than that, they don't. 
And so these are fantastic women, and I'd love the league to be bigger so more women who are outstanding players can graduate college and have a shot at having a career in the WNBA. And just the, you know, it, it imbalance isn't even remotely close to a word. The, you know, the different universe that men's basketball is in versus women's is disheartening, but I do think it is starting to change. And I wanted to be part of the group that would help elevate the WNBA. In a few sports like tennis, there's parity. And that's interesting, but not here, not even remotely close. Yeah, I'd never thought about that before, but it is true. Women's tennis seems like they've gotten much closer to what maybe the rest of sports should be like. I don't even women's tennis, I think of as actually true parody. And that's thanks to Billie Jean King, of course, who wouldn't play until they would pay her fairly. And then again, 20 years later, Venus Williams, who really said to Wimbledon, you've got to pay us what the men get. And she she was able to do that. And so there's parody there, which is fantastic. And uh, I'm a giant women's tennis fan and they don't need any help from me. (laughs) But I'm happy to have that. I think also women's ice skating and women's gymnastics. So the podcast is How She Does It. It's part of the Her Money Network. Tell me, Karen, who do you feel your target audience is? I feel like it is women who women who are interested in investing. They might know me from that, from CNBC. Women who are young in their careers, who want to sort of hear like, what does it really take? What? How does that really happen? What can I do to help my path? You know, I get asked a lot about mentors and finding a mentor. And I feel like you can't just go up to someone and say, can you be my mentor? But I do think if you're a woman in a more male-dominated field and you, you know, want a mentor, don't look for a woman. Look right. for a man who has daughters for two reasons. One, there's more men in a male-oriented field. So there's the math of it. But I think that element of a man with daughters is important because he may very well see something in you that touches his desire for his daughters to have a career path as well. I've heard people say that before. And the other side rings true. Like if you are listening to these type of podcasts, like how she does it and wondering how you can help as a man in business today, it's mentoring someone male or female, but certainly if there is a young person who you can give them some of that knowledge and ability, it's definitely helpful to provide it. And that's one way we as men can support people Mm -hmm. coming up and trying to learn and become part of business. That parity doesn't happen without men, for sure. It can't, I don't know, I don't, I don't think it can be overstated. Men, men are part of the solution. Yeah. So if you're a man listening to this and wondering, should I listen to how she does it? For sure, you should even just to become a better mentor for people who are eventually going to be coming into your field and will need your help. Tell me what you think the outlook is for women over the next 10 years in business, Wall Street, corporate America. Do you feel like things are looking up? I do feel like things are looking up. However, I have to warn you, I'm a bit of a, you know, eternal optimist. So I've thought that for a long time, but I really do think things are looking up. I mean, we've seen some glass ceilings. We have seen Jane Fraser, who is the CEO of Citibank. She is the first woman 
to run a major financial institution. And I think we are going to see more female CEOs. My next guess would be whenever Jamie Dimon decides to retire, that a woman will take over at J.P. Morgan. And I try not to get overtly political with this conversation, but how much do you think the future of women in the workplace, women specifically on Wall Street and corporate America, how much does that relate to who's politically in power at the time? Do you worry that, you know, the politics of the day will thwart or change the trajectory that we're hoping happens? Oh, I I mean, I hope not. Um, It is kind of ridiculous. Here we are. And we have, I mean, I hope not. But it's, I do wonder, though, if there would be a backlash against a woman president. I would hope not. I would hope, in fact, it it propels things more, more quickly forward. I think that, I mean, we've seen some governor. I, I love that we have, you know, Janet Yellen is the secretary of the treasury. She was the chair of the Fed. I mean, it's 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 happening not not quickly enough. I don't want it to be a I want it to be unremarkable. You know, when a woman becomes the CEO of XYZ Corp. And we're so far from unremarkable. It's the first thing when a woman becomes CEO. It's in the first sentence, the first line. We don't see Oh, so-and-so named, you know, Joe Smith, a man, to be the CEO <laughs> of XYZ Corp. It's crazy. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it is. And I think I think a lot, too, about legislation in the Supreme Court and things like Roe v. Wade and how most people don't realize how that affects also women's place in corporate America. It, ex- it, it affects everything. And again, not to get into which side you fall on, et cetera, but I think people don't realize the profound impact mm-hmm. our governance has on people's ability to succeed and feel safe and able to pursue the workplace. It's devastating. And you can't help but think, um, you know, how did we get here? It really it, I don't know. It's devastating. It's disheartening. I think it's harder to affect change on the Supreme Court. Than maybe any other venue, I guess. But, you know, the back door is obviously to changes in the White House, but some of it is just the math of the age of the Supreme Court justices. It's big hope as well as big challenges, I think, coming in the future. And that's why I think we're so, so excited to hear how she does it and what you talk about and who you talk to. I want to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you to tell us where we can find the podcast and then specifically uh-huh. if people have questions for you, how they can reach out. So where we can find, where you can find the podcast is Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and I want to say Amazon. They can contact me at Karen Feinerman at hermoney.com. Karen Feinerman, thank you so much for coming on Earn and Invest. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you for having me. That's a wrap. Earn and Invest is now part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to this show as well as other fine podcasts. All right, here's the straight dope. This is reality. Whenever I do an episode that has anything to do with non-financial issues, 
whether we're talking about gender, equity, equality, whatever it is, I generally don't have as many listeners. Those episodes don't do as well. They don't get as many downloads. If you're listening to this right now, I'm not really speaking to you, right? Because you've listened to the whole episode. You stuck with it. You didn't quit early. You're probably not the person who has decided this is not for you. I always struggle with this issue because these are things that I'm interested in talking about. I like to talk about disparities. I like to talk about what I think isn't going right in the United States today, but I also realize that my beliefs aren't always 100% in alignment with my audience. Maybe my financial issues are, but not my social ideology. That's fine. And in fact, when I do episodes like today's episode with Karen Feinerman, or when I do episodes that talk about anything other than just basic finance, I always want to make sure that what we talk about also has some financial pearls in it above and beyond whatever social ideologies we're talking about. That's why I loved this discussion today. There are really two things that came out of this that I think are pearls of wisdom regardless of where you fall on the social or political spectrum. The first is something that Karen said that really spoke to me, which is, there is a lot to like about failure. Think about that. There is a lot to like about failure. I know we talk about this all the time, the idea of failing forward or failing in an attempt to do something big and audacious, and it's the process that is important and not whether you succeed or fail. But I love the way she stated this. There's a lot to like about failure. I have been failure-prone my whole life. I have not succeeded at most of the things I've tried, both in childhood and in adulthood. Even here in the financial world, I could list off hundreds of failures in my ability to create content, build community, or even get my words out there. And yet all those failures have gotten me to be here today to talk to you all to create this great podcast All of the bounties, because I was willing to fail, and I didn't give up, and I kept failing. And let me tell you, it didn't feel good. (laughs) Like, I don't like failure. I'm not Pollyanna about this. I would avoid failure any way I can. But the reality is, failure is just so common, and I've certainly had it in tons of things I've done. My first blogs weren't successful. My first podcast episodes has taken me years to build a podcast audience, which is much smaller than some of the bigger podcasters. I wrote a book and self-published and it went nowhere. I wrote a book and traditionally published and it was so hard to find a publisher, rejection after rejection after rejection. And yet, I'm so glad that I was willing to fail. So that was the first message that I really loved from this episode. There's a lot to like about failure. The second message I really connected to was her message about mentorship. So she was telling young women to look for mentors, and maybe some of those mentors should be men. But I just connected this idea of mentorship in general. It is a wonderful way for you, if you're expert in something, to pass on your knowledge, to create a legacy, to create change, even long after you've left that job, or God forbid, left this earth, those people we mentor carry on our work and expand and evolve it. 
and create beautiful things which they bring into the world. And it's priceless. Think about all those times that you were mentored and someone helped you and it opened your mind enough that you could see things in a different or new light and that made you more successful and better at what you did. That's it. Two messages that I really, really connected to in this episode with Karen Feinerman, although there are many, many other messages I connected to also. But specifically, there's a lot to like about failure and be a good mentor to someone. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening to this conversation with Karen on Earn and Invest. And we will be back in a few days for the next episode. Okay. All right. I keep things running just for a moment or two to catch our chatter afterwards. Yep. Um, yep. Whew, I was not, I, I feel like I, um, not my best day for asking questions. So I apologize. That's okay. That's, I, I often feel like that. I didn't feel like it was my, my best day, but um, yeah, you know, it's, I feel interesting as an athlete, prior athlete. Uh, I knew, um, I thought you were totally fine, but sometimes you, you're the judge of you. And some days one just doesn't have it, <laughs> but that was not apparent to me at all. Well, that may be entirely in your head. You're a, yeah, you don't get to be a doctor and, and <laughs> switch gears and be successful doing something else without a good deal of, um, I don't know. What's the word, um, um, without a good deal of pressure on yourself. Very true. So tell me about the making of the podcast. Um, how's it going? Has it, I assume you've, you, so you got come out, what, June 26th, I think I saw. Yeah. So you've probably yeah. recorded a bunch of episodes. Yeah, we got a bunch. We'll start with Melissa Lee, who is the co-host of our show, who is a very good friend of mine. And she had a very sort of circuitous path. She went to Harvard, became a uh, consultant. They offered, you know, pay for her business school if you come back to consulting. And she grew up in a Chinese, you know, sort of a, a traditional Chinese family and told her parents, I'm not doing this. I want to go do financial news. And they're like, this is the biggest mistake of your life. <laughs> and so they all had a path. Sally Krawcheck, who has had some, you know, big time firings, uh, public firings. Um... And um, I have next week, Diana Nyad. She's the one who said, find a way. I don't know if you know who she is, the swimmer. Yeah, yeah, I know yeah. who she is. And she had, wasn't she the one who had a documentary about her? Yes, yes. She was, was she Ukrainian or was she, I can't remember. No, no, no. She, swam, she swam from Cuba to Florida. Got it, got it, got it, got it. Got it. Um, on her fourth try... At 62. I remember now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I remember her story. Yeah. So she's quite a character. I mean, she, you know, the idea, so failing, failing, failing. I don't know how one gets to, gets to a fourth try at 62. Yeah. But she did. Um, and uh, Julie, Julie Wainwright, who founded The Real Real. I don't know mm -hmm. if you're familiar with The Real yeah. Real. Um, but she was, she was the CEO of Pets.com during their enormous bust in the dot-com era. And but was they had great commercials. They had that sock puppet. <laughs> great and commercials. Was fantastic. But yeah. but yeah, she was told you are unhirable. Yeah. And she realized, okay, I got to make my own 
job. She wrote a book, Five Biggest Mistakes I Made. And after that, she started The Real Real. Um, it's so funny because, right, the story is always the same. It's persistence, right? It, right. It's just dogged persistence. Yeah. And yet again, you know, I'm also very aware of the fact that by just being the guy who's like persistence, 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 mm-hmm. you know, people look at you like that's a really privileged place, right? Because you were never, you know, poor and yes. struggling just to get the kids to school and all these things that I didn't yes. have. But it does like over and over again, these stories of these incredible people like you said, it's not that they don't fail. It's just the dogged persistence right? Yeah. to keep going. Some of them, they're just, they're, they're optimists and they're not, they're not, you know, sunk by it. And others are, it's ego and they can't stand it. And they just have to keep going. <laughs> they Either have way, to succeed, yeah. Yeah, right. They can't live with themselves not being a f- success. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambi Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is a yoga class? Get out of here. <laughs> 